0: Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. In today's episode, we are pleased to be speaking with Dr. Paula Gordon, Dr. Paula Gordon is a clinical professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of British Columbia. She is medical director of the Sadie Diamond Breast Program at BC Women's Hospital. She has served as a reviewer for several medical publications, has written dozens of articles in peer-reviewed journals, chaired committees, volunteers on a variety of boards, and has been the recipient of numerous awards. It is no wonder she was made a Fellow of the Society of Breast Imaging a section of the American College of Radiology in recognition of her contributions to the field. She was named one of Canada's 100 Most Powerful Women by the Women's Executive Network. We are honored to have Dr. Gordon with us today. Welcome to the conversation.
1: The workhorse is mammography, both for screening and diagnostic mammography. Uh, Ultrasound was the next modality to uh, really get going in the mid 80s and then mri and pet scans and all kinds of other fancy stuff contrast enhanced mammograms uh, nuclear medicine tests like bsgi breast specific gamma imaging
2: Mm. and
1: molecular breast imaging but all these are different ways of looking at breast tissue the mammogram is a low dose x-ray of the breast and a typical mammogram screening mammogram consists of two pictures of each breast One picture where the breast is squished from top to bottom and the other from side to side at a bit of an angle. And the technology has really gotten so much better. Digital breast homosynthesis. And that's a mammogram that's obtained while the x-ray tube is moving in an arc while the patient's in compression. And it generates a series of pictures that look like you're flipping through the pages of a book. Or for example, what we take for granted, when we look at a CT scan and we page through a part of the body like the abdomen, for example, um, where we see slices. And by looking in slices, we can see much better detail. Breasts are composed of fat and normal breast tissue. And if you wanna break that down, we call that fibroglandular tissue. So the glands that make the milk and the fibrous tissue that supports the glands. But I'll just abbreviate that and call it normal breast tissue. On a mammogram, fat is black, and normal breast tissue is white. And therein lies the limitation of mammography. Normal breast tissue is white, but abnormalities are white. So cancers are white. Cysts and other non-cancerous lumps are white. And there's a range of what women have in their breasts. Normal breasts can be anything from almost hundred percent fat to hundred percent dense, dense, being the normal white tissue. And if a woman gets a cancer, which is white in a fatty breast, it jumps out at you like a star in the sky, a bright white area in a black background. If a woman gets a cancer in a dense breast, it's like you've heard the expression, trying to find a snow sto- a snowball in a snowstorm. And if a woman has in-between breast tissue with some fat and some dense gl- uh, tissue, it depends where the cancer arises. If it arises in a fatty part of her breast, we can still see it. But even if a woman has only a small amount of dense tissue, if her cancer arises in that little area, we could still miss it. So the accuracy of mammography is determined by how dense a woman's breasts are. And in North America, uh, the standard is to use what's called the BI-RADS system. That is a system from the American College of Radiology and breast density is divided into four categories. And so it used to be zero to 25% area of dense breast tissue, 25 to 50, 55 to 75, and 75 to 100 we don't use the percentage area method anymore, which in some ways has made it more complicated and subjective. We're supposed to kind of eyeball the mammogram and determine what the likelihood of a cancer being missed because of dense tissue is for a given woman. And women, I believe should be told how dense their breasts are because if you know that you're relatively fatty you can put a lot of faith in your mammogram to find cancer if you're unlucky enough to develop it.
2: I get I guess and, I have a question for you there yes. uh, Paula uh, is it is it a law in the United States now or is it a state law that Some
1: states some states in fact I think the number is 35 okay have passed some form of legislation requiring women to be told about breast density but the wording is tremendously variable some states will say as much detail as uh, uh, require the radiologist when they report the screening mammogram to say, you have dense breast tissue. This means your mammogram is less sensitive at finding cancer. You should consider having some supplemental screening like ultrasound. Other States don't even tell a woman that she has dense breasts or not. They say, if a woman has dense breasts, this might make it harder for the mammogram to detect cancer that's pretty useless. I mean, it, it's, it's nice that they're giving her some general information, but they're not giving her specific information to her. Now, the best website for women to look up is uh, an American educational website. It's all medically based from, you know, from the, the medical literature. And the website is www.densebreast-info.org. And they have, an inter- they have an interactive map on their website where a woman can see what her state is doing, whether a law has been introduced and, uh, you know, whether it's been passed. And they're very specific about which states tell a woman the most information as opposed to the least
2: we'll We'll do a special blog on dense breasts and just get uh, dense breast tissue and just get that information out there, especially to the underserved communities, which we find out in the in in an awful lot of the um, economically challenged um neighborhoods and states.
0: I had a mammogram not too long ago and did receive a letter notifying me about my dense breast tissue. This is what the letter said. I believe this is a pretty standard template in the state of Massachusetts. In your recent mammogram, your breast appeared dense. The mammographic appearance of de- dense breast tissue is a common and normal pattern seen in 40% or more of women. While dense breast tissue is not an abnormal mammographic finding, it may make it more difficult to find cancer in a mammogram and may also increase your risk of breast cancer. We wish to inform you that Massachusetts law requires us to notify you that additional testing may be needed for reliable breast cancer screening. Additional screening may be advisable. You should discuss your results of the mammogram with your referring or primary care physician. You have the right to discuss the results of your mammogram with your referring physician. Your mammogram report has been part of your medical record. I am glad that my state was able to notify me of this it will be interesting to go to densebreast-info.org to see what other states are doing and the legislation that they're trying to move forward. You know, I think there's different philosophies depending on um, the radiology team and the practice of their centers and hospitals and how they approach breast health in general. And I'm not sure that there's been like a unifying unifying standard. So I've been doing a lot of research on this um, 3D mammography that you were describing where you can kind of slice through and look through the the pages of the book. And it was very interesting because I was talking to the technician and I was asking if this was like, what type of imaging are we doing? And they confirmed it was gonna be just the standard 2D image. And I said, as somebody who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 34, and I have this letter from previous checkups that I am someone with dense breast tissue, would I not be a candidate to have the 3D mammography. Am I not you know, placed on that spectrum? And again, trying to self-advocate for myself and just wondering if that would be a better approach for me as I felt like I was high risk. The response that I got, um, and again, I'm not trying to make any universal statements, this was just my personal experience, was that a lot of the um, 3D imaging was able to pick up absolutely everything that they ended up doing a lot of biopsies to find benign tumors. I wasn't sure what your experience was um, or is, or if you have an opinion about the different modalities for testing breast cancer.
1: So there right now is a multi-center trial getting off the ground to look at uh, 3D mammography. Uh, it's been, it's been in, in use in many places and academic centers for years though. And the, the, the data we have so far is that it increases cancer detection by about thirty percent? That's big. That's huge. Yes. And, and overall, it reduces the false alarms by about forty percent. Is it
2: is it just is it just a function of cost, which is it, it, it's, it's prohibitively expensive? Is, is that why they're pushing back against doing performing it that way?
1: Um, you know depending where you go they might not even have yes. it so they're going to make excuses right. it i i can predict that it will be the standard for screening mammography eventually but yes it is expensive but not prohibitively um any well depends what company you buy they not all mammography vendors the people who make and sell the machines are capable of Tomos of the 3d at this and The point. technology. Okay. Um, uh, and if a, if a place for x-ray facility hasn't bought equipment in a while, then they wouldn't have, the, they wouldn't have a machine that has it. Um, and so they might have to wait until their machine is wearing out and, and maybe then they'll look into okay. it. Okay. Uh, but no, I, yes, it does find some things that aren't gonna be cancer, just like any screening test. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, the overall is that it reduces the false alarms. Okay. Excellent, thank you for clarifying. Mm-hmm. False alarms are something we all have to live with, with with any test. The question is, if it finds 30% more cancers and you know some women have to have a needle biopsy that turns out to be benign, You know, isn't the benefit, doesn't the benefit outweigh the harm overall? And that's actually the big question about about screening mammography, when to start, how often to screen. The detractors of screening mammography claim that the harms outweigh the benefits. And this gets us to this letter you saw about our Canadian task force. Uh, Now, I might tell you, there is a U.S. task force. It has a slightly different name. It's called the United States Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. And they came out with recommendations in uh, 2009 and then again in 2016. And their methodology is not much different than our Canadian task force. The problem is they are not looking at the most up-to-date data because they cling to reliance on a special kind of... experiment called a randomized control trial and there have been multiple trials of mammography but they were done between the 1960s and the early 1990s so they were done with technology never mind tomosynthesis they weren't even digital this was the old-fashioned mammograms where we had a piece of x-ray film that we had to put up on a light box to look at with a magnifying glass and with that technology the Mortality reduction from women having mammograms was in the neighborhood of 15 to 30%. The problem is that there were two trials done in Canada that were poorly designed and poorly executed. They not only didn't show mortality reduction, those trials showed that women who had mammograms were more likely to die of breast cancer. Now, how could that be? And it's the need to look at the really detailed minutia of how a study is done that is important. And that's what the task forces have not done. And what they did is they just, these Canadian trials should have been tossed. They should be completely ignored, but instead these people don't know any better. And they rolled in those bad results with the other really good results and wound up with the conclusion that women who have mammograms are, 15 to 20% less likely to die of breast cancer. Now there's, it it would take a while to explain why even the best performed randomized trial underestimates the benefits. But if you're going to average in bad trials with good trials, the good trials being the ones from Sweden, which showed overall 30% mortality reduction. And that's using the old fashioned mammography technology, a more up-to-date study, which our task force ignored was one published in 2014 in Canada, the the good Canadian study, where the researchers surveyed the 12 screening programs in Canada. We have uh, provinces and territories. They got data from seven of them on 2.7 million women and showed 40% mortality reduction among the women who have screening mammograms and the women who don't. But our task force chose to ignore that data and use the, 20, or the 15 to 20 percent mortality reduction, and they ignored the, the good study because it wasn't a randomized trial. It was what's called an observational study. Now, our our task force, like the Americans, say that what they're doing is they're balancing the benefits with the harms, and because they regarded the benefits as tw- uh, 15 to 20 percent which is an underestimate. They said their harms outweigh those benefits. If they had used the 40% mortality reduction, would that have changed their minds? We'll never know. But here we come back to the harms, as you mentioned, Laura. One of the harms, well, the the harm they, they actually are most worried about, believe it or not, is that if a woman has a screening test and she gets recalled for additional tests, that she's going to be nervous understandably and sometimes it takes a week or two or longer to get all the tests done that she needs to have before they can say now we're we're, now we're confident that you don't have cancer Mm -hmm. And all during that time the woman is really anxious but it's transient and you know it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater to suggest that because some women are going to have transient anxiety that we shouldn't screen women we shouldn't find those potentially lethal cancers that our current treatments can cure. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, that's what they're saying. The harms outweigh the benefits. The, and the other harm that they cite is, and by the way, I want to go back to that harm, the, the uh, transient anxiety, the being recalled. I call those false alarms. The task force used the pejorative term false positive mm. to me and most people a false positive is i told you you have cancer but you don't i never said you had cancer i said we need to take some extra pictures there's something on your mammogram and we want to be more sure as only a small percentage of women who are recalled actually turn out to have cancer and i think women should be counseled before they have their very first mammogram look false alarms are common but it's the price you have to pay for to help us find those early cancers. And if women understand that, I think they're in a position to choose for themselves whether the benefits are worth those harms. The other harm that they cite is so-called overdiagnosis. Now, overdiagnosis is the theoretical possibility that we might find a cancer and the woman get treated for it but that she'll die of something else before her cancer would have killed her. And yes, of course that happens. Let's say a woman finishes her cancer therapy and uh, she's on her way out to dinner to celebrate and she gets hit by a bus and dies. That's the silly Mm -hmm. example that shows, yes, we treated her for cancer, but it never would have killed her because she was always destined to get hit by the bus. Well, we don't know that she, we don't, don't have a crystal ball. It could be that, uh, especially in an older woman, she gets treated for her breast cancer, but then she dies of heart disease. If we knew that she was going to die of heart disease at a certain age, we may not have needed to treat her cancer because the heart disease... would, But these are theoretical. And there's no reliable way of calculating the rate of overdiagnosis. It's something you can, you can do modeling studies, like just play with statistics, and most experts agree that a realistic likelihood of overdiagnosis is less than 10 percent, but our task forces use the figure of 30 percent, which is unreasonably high. Furthermore, overdiagnosis, the way I just explained it to you, is much more likely in an older woman who's likely to get out of their diseases. It's much less likely in a younger woman. And so our task force shouldn't be using that as an excuse to deny screening to younger women. Like Mm -hmm. most of us recommend screening starting at age 40. We know that cancer gets more common as women get older. So 40 is a reasonable threshold. We also know that the breast gets less sensitive to any harmful effects of radiation as women get older. So 40 is the, the sweet spot where most people think it is reasonable to start screening everybody at starting at age forty.
2: But aren't, aren't we seeing an awful lot of occurrence of cancer in t- women in their twenties and thirties now? Is this is this something that is it's just being picked up because of the the, the social media campaign or just the, the amount of education that is out there and, and the fact that um, they are being screened? albeit they have to fight with their insurance companies in order to go through one of the various uh, breast uh, screening processes and get it paid for by the insurance company. And and I I wanted you to touch upon that uh, as well up in Canada. Do you have single-payer insurance up there? Is that all government?
1: Yes, we have have socialized medicine, which means the single-payer is the government. Yes. And there's very little private medicine in Canada. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, my province is um, threatening to uh, close all the private centers to make them close. Um, that's a whole other political discussion. Yes. Back to your oh question. <laughs> so, so well, it, it, let, let me come back to it in a second. Sure. There, there have always been uh, women in the younger age ranges who get breast cancer. Yes. It is far less common. It is tragic. I don't think it's increasing in frequency. Okay. Maybe we're hearing about it more because of social media, but the dilemma is to screen, let's pick a number, 35. Should we start screening at 35? Should we start screening at 30? When you when you increase the the age range, when you lower the starting time, the number of women you have to screen to find a cancer grows and grows. So the question is, is the disease frequent enough in that age range to justify screening the whole population of women? Mm -hmm. One of the ways that, you know, it is a screening test, but we don't often think of it as that because it's very low tech. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But one screening test for breast cancer is breast self-examination. I mean, most women who are not in the mammography screening age group find their cancers by find, you know, finding them with, a, with their hand. And our task force has recommended that women not do breast self-examination.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So the recommendation comes from the fact that there actually have been some randomized trials of breast self-exam, and that they haven't shown mortality reduction. But what's the harm for heaven's sakes? If a woman gets to know what her own breast feels like normally, she's more likely than any doctor or nurse to notice when there's a change or a new lump and if we encourage women to do breast self-examination that it that term's gone out of favor now they say be breast aware <laughs> um, if we encourage women to know what their own normal feels like they're likely to find their cancer smaller than if they wait to just bump into it there's one of the um, women who is involved with dense breast Canada tells us that her she only found her cancer completely by accident because she was on a trip and staying in a hotel. And when she's at home, she always uses a shower puff mm-hmm. to suds herself mm-hmm. and she didn't have her shower puff in the hotel. So she soaked up her hands and started running her hands all over her body to wash herself. And that's when she found the big lump in her breast. Right. which she had never found before because, of course, the puff didn't find it. So, you uh-huh. know, this, so doing breast self-exam is still a, a means of earlier detection. than it would, I mean, some women find their cancer because they look at themselves in the mirror one day and they notice a bulge, you know, in their breast, just that's visible in the mirror. So the task force saying women shouldn't do breast self-examination is, to me, a little silly Also, for women who are being screened with mammography, who have dense breasts, we know that mammograms miss 50% of breast cancers in those women. That's how they could possibly find their cancers earlier, by doing breast self-exam. Also, of course, having breast ultrasound to find the cancers that the mammograms miss. And we know that breast ultrasound finds three to four cancers Per thousand women. That's about how many we find on mammography. So we're essentially doubling the cancer detection rate if we had women with dense breasts have mammography plus ultrasound.
2: We, we find that there's an awful lot of pushback in the States. We've been a huge proponent of the SBEs for some time, and we are catching a little bit of flack from even some in the medical profession. We found that there was an awful lot of pushback um, on social media, and, um, we, we found Laura's, um, uh, uh, breast cancer ourselves. And initially, uh, when, when we went to her physician, she just, because of her young age at 32, she was attributing it to uh, dense breast tissue. And so we just let it slide foolishly enough. It was the wrong course of action, uh, because, um, Uh, uh, down the road she starts to get some indentation and then a little bit of pain and of course the cancer had spread to the lymph nodes under her left arm and so that two years was fairly costly for her with regards to uh, treatment and um uh uh the resolution of, of the cancer, per se, as opposed to if we had, if we had caught it two years prior, we feel very comfortable with that. So we, we would, we've been a natural proponent of uh, self-breast examinations for some time, and the majority of our community, and we've had over 30,000 unique visitors to our website, the majority of our community feels that way, but we've had some pushback even from doctors
1: one of the reasons that the family doctor may have pushed back is because the the task force recommends against it and family doctors have to be masters of everything yes they can't read the data for themselves the people who are making the guidelines about breast cancer screening are not breast cancer experts now let that sink in for a minute and the GPs, the family doctors, and I know in the States, a lot of people go to other healthcare providers. They believe that these guidelines are coming from experts and that's what they cling to. And that's why you had pushback. Now, having said that, if a woman goes to her doctor and says, I found a lump in my breast, the doctor should never blow it off. Especially if a woman says, look, I do breast self-examination and this is new. This is different than my normal. You really have to um, advocate for yourself. uh, Be assertive. And at the very least, especially in a younger woman, start with an ultrasound perhaps. Now, in fact, the guidelines from the American College on how to deal with a lump um, are that if a woman is 30 or older she can have a mammogram and an ultrasound right off the bat. And when you said that her doctor examined her and said it was dense tissue, I have to correct you, or I guess I'm correcting the doctor on that. You cannot tell if a woman has dense breasts by feel. Mm. So a
0: doctor examining
1: cannot, the only way you can tell is by having that first mammogram because a breast can feel lumpy, even if it's fatty. Okay. A breast can be painful without being dense. The, 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 that's a, that's a, uh, something that's misunderstood a great deal. Dense breast tissue uh, can only be determined by a mammogram. So yes, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that you were delayed in getting diagnosed. Uh, thank goodness our therapies nowadays are so amazing that even women whose cancers aren't found early um, are doing very well but another problem with the task force is that the only metric they consider is mortality reduction mm. they ignore because they only lose use randomized trials and because the only thing a randomized trial measures is the mortality from breast cancer they ignore three other important benefits of early detection and you're going to be nodding in a minute laura If a woman has her breast cancer detected early, she's more likely to be a candidate for a lumpectomy and not need a mastectomy. If a woman has her breast cancer detected earlier, she may not need an axillary dissection. That's the armpit surgery, for which a common complication is lymphedema. That's when a woman gets a swollen arm and hand, which is life-changing and permanent Nowadays, women with early breast cancer can have a sentinel node biopsy and avoid the armpit surgery. The task force didn't consider that a benefit. And lastly, nowadays, with genomic testing, many women who are diagnosed early can avoid chemotherapy. And our task forces don't give that any merit. Wow. So, so, so that's why even when a younger woman gets breast cancer and she's not in the mammography screening age group, we still want her diagnosed earlier and breast self-examination is one of the ways that that can happen.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with my exact uh, diagnosis and prognosis. So because it moved to the lymph nodes, I did have to have that full auxiliary node dissection and therefore, because it already spread to the lymph nodes was not a candidate for that um, oncotype DX testing to see whether or not I needed chemotherapy or not. So yeah. I had what we call the trifecta, right? With chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, additional. Um, I took an oral chemotherapy of capsidabine for six months afterwards. And now I'm on hormonal therapies for the next 10 years. But, you know, the medicines are great. They keep coming up with new and more advanced medications. So, you know, I'm remaining positive about all of that.
1: There's, there's so and, many reasons.
2: And, and suffering positive. lymphedema as well.
0: Sorry, I missed that. Oh, yeah, I'm suffering yeah. lymphedema as well because of that. No, I see yeah. a massage therapist, no, but no, it's, it's no. very early on. So I wear the sleeve and then do the um self lymphatic massages.
1: But wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to have it?
0: Oh my God, yeah. yes.
1: <laughs> um, so yes, there's a lot to be positive about, but we can
0: do better. Yes. So what is, what is um, the Canadian response to this task force? Um, it sounds like, you know, I think a lot of times too when I'm talking to you, those who have been diagnosed or those who are scared to even get the mammography because they don't want to know. Um, You know, I love my, like the light bulbs are going off, I would love to do a sequel to this uh, conversation and even create like a little video of like what to expect when you go in for your first mammogram, how can we decrease the anxiety, what to expect when you go in for your first follow up after you've gone through all of this treatment when you kind of have this PTSD um showing back up because last time you were in that space it didn't end very well you know so i think there's a lot we can do with a storytelling video and talking to experts like yourself about how to prepare the public um, but i'd be curious to know now that we know kind of where the task force where they're positioning themselves what what's the movement going on in canada and how can people get involved and have a response to this
1: great question so Let me backtrack a little bit because our task force did come out with guidelines in 2011 that were pretty much the same. And the reason they're no different now, even though there's this new data, is our task force won't look at the new data because it's not a randomized trial. And the only thing they really changed is they said uh, the decision about screening should be shared decision-making between a woman and her doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, of course it should be shared. But then what they did is they feed the family doctors all this old data. Um, and it's the, if a woman's going to really make an informed decision, she needs the current data. And so I, I would direct you, in fact, to there's a, a wonderful website for women contemplating mammography and making that decision called endtheconfusion.org. Hmm. That's a really good one. take notes on that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And what are we doing in Canada? Well, um, we have a very small network in Canada compared to the U.S. In in the U.S., there's the American College of Radiology, and the the uh, Society of Breast Imaging. In Canada, most breast and most breast imaging is done by general radiologists. There are not a lot who are super focused on breast imaging, and Uh, Just in the last year, colleagues have formed the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging. We had our inaugural meeting uh, last year, and we have our next one coming up in May. And we're trying to rally support. It's really shocking how little support there has been, though. And I wrote a letter when the task force recommendations came out, and I was able to get 130 signatures from just asking people one at a time pretty much. And these are mostly radiologists because radiologists know the most about the randomized trials. They know the all the problems with the Canadian study and why it should have been thrown out. And we've had some coverage, um, a really good um, podcast through our Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that's the equivalent of NPR in the States, is um, by a doctor named Brian Goldman and his podcast is called White Coat Black Art. And he did a podcast Oh, I want to say last April, I have forgotten. I can actually send you the details by email where he oh, interviewed Michelle uh DiTomaso, who's one of the founders of Dense Breast Canada. Mm. And really brought some awareness to the subject of dense breasts. Um but uh In the meantime, uh, I wrote this letter. I was able to get 130 signatures. It was sent to every provincial minister of health and the federal minister of health. Uh, Canada's a little complicated because um, health is administered on a provincial level, but the Canadian Task Force is funded by the feds and they give them money but then they don't have any oversight. So they let them come out with these guidelines, but they don't insist that they be reviewed by experts before they're disseminated to the family doctors and the public. There's now a petition that was started by Dense Breast Canada. It's only been up for a week on a website called uh, change.org. And we have almost 13,000 signatures in less than a week. Now, remember Canada's a 10th the population of the US. so. I mean, that probably sounds like a small number to you, but that's major. No,
0: that's amazing. That's great.
1: (laughs) But um, it's really hard to rally Canadians because having social health care, a lot of them just assume that the government's going to take care of them. And if it's a recommended test, it will be provided. And if it's not covered, it must not be necessary. So we have we're we're working very hard at educating the public about the uh limitations of these recommendations
2: so let me let me stop you there for a second paula so if a young woman who's under the age and sh- she's twenty eight years old and and she through her self breast examinations detects a lump and then she wants to go for a mammogram or an ultrasound will the will the Will Canada not pay for that? Is she on her own? If her
1: family doctor writes her a requisition, it's covered. Okay. And that's if she has a lump. Okay. Now, what's changed in the last month is that uh, in my province, British Columbia, if a woman finds out that she has dense breasts and she wants to have a screening ultrasound, if her doctor will give her, her a requisition it is now covered. That's only in the last month. Mm. A problem we're having though, is that it's not really available many places. So even a woman can go to a, a place, an office or a hospital that does ultrasound, but they're in a position to say, well, we don't do that. And part of the problem is that the fee to do it is really not adequate. And so the radiologists will think the radiology department will think, look, we've got wait, wait times for all these essential tests and we just can't give up appointment spots if we're not going to get paid enough to do it.
2: Oh boy. Oh boy. So in my city,
1: I think there's only one office that's doing screening ultrasound and that's the one where I work. Okay. So it's now covered though, that's, that's a step. That's a big step.
2: That's, that's yep. definitely a step and, and it's, uh, it's done piecemeal. So, so in essence, what you're saying is that we have some folks who don't take the Hippocratic Oath, who are making decisions on those folks who do take that oath, who are working in tandem with uh, potential breast cancer patients fighting the system. And I use the term loosely, of course, but um, it just it doesn't make sense to me. There's, there's illogic there.
1: I, I, I hear, yeah, there, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I will tell you though, in the United States, there are only five states that require insurance to cover supplemental screening. So even though there's 35 states that tell women about dense breasts, uh, mm-hmm. only five states have legislation requiring that the test be covered by insurance. And if you have dense breasts, Get an ultrasound as well. In fact, in the US, the American College, I'm thinking with two brains here. The American College issued new guidelines that women who've had breast cancer, who have dense breasts, should be offered MRI, which is even more sensitive than ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Never, never mind ultrasound. Get your get your tomosynthesis and your MRI if you're dense. Yes. If you have a mammogram and you've had a breast recurrence and you have fatty breasts we'll probably see a recurrence on a mammogram pretty much all the way back. We get almost all the way to the pectoral muscle. Okay. If you have fatty breasts and a woman who has dense breasts, we could miss it. That's why women who've had cancer, who are at an increased risk of getting a recurrence are recommended to have MRI if they have dense breasts. So you, once you've had a breast cancer, not only you are at risk, for it recurring and there's local recurrence where it comes back in the same spot. There's recurrence elsewhere in that breast. And there's a new cancer in the other breast. You're at a higher risk of getting a new cancer in the other breast. Mm. And same answer. If you've got fatty breasts, it's likely to be visible on mammography. If touch wood, that happens. If you've got dense breasts, that's why we want you to have the supplemental screening, either MRI, ideally, or The poor man's MRI is ultrasound, Mm -hmm. both of which cause false alarms, MRI potentially more than ultrasound. But that's why you want to be in a center that does lots of breast MRI and, you know, read by people who are quite expert.
2: What I would like to do in closing, Paula, is ask you to put the patient at ease walking in to her first mammogram.
1: Well, I would tell her, Uh, that if she is premenopausal she should schedule that mammogram when she's finishing her period not when she's premenstrual mammograms are undoubtedly uncomfortable but for premenopausal women still having periods the breasts are most sensitive just before the period so please don't schedule your mammogram then I would tell you don't wear any body powder or deodorant I would tell you that you're going to have your mammogram by somebody who's done lots of them. And yes, um, it may feel awkward to be positioned for the mammogram. The technologist will tell you how to stand and gently place your mammogram in the machine and then gradually uh, apply the compression that it's going to be uncomfortable, but it should not be excruciating. That if it gets to that point, you should tell the technologist, that's all I can, uh, that's all the compression I can handle and she should stop at that point and not say just a little more dear and keep cranking it down. That should not happen. That you'll be in, in compression for a couple of seconds and all the machines that are in use now are designed so as soon as the X-ray is taken, the compression automatically releases. The technologist does not have to walk around and uncrank it. And it will be two pictures per breast um, and you could be in and out in as little as 10 minutes that there's an excellent chance you will be recalled and scared for nothing, especially on your very first mammogram, because there's no priors for the radiologist to compare with. When we see something on a mammogram, if we have a previous and we see, oh yeah, that's been there for years and it's not changing, we can completely uh, discount it. The very first time somebody's in when there's no priors, it's much more likely that we'll see something that we know it's probably nothing, but better safe than slurry. Let's just get the t- patient back, do a couple more tests. So don't panic if you get that letter or phone call to come back for more tests.
2: Words of wisdom. Paula, with that, we've held you for your hour. I don't wanna take any more of your time. We could sit here and listen to you all day. Absolutely, this is wonderful. You can, so educational.
0: Happy to do another one in, in the future. Thank you, Dr. Gordon, for being on our show today and taking the time to provide in-depth insight into breast imaging. You highlight the benefits of early detection and the important role mammography plays in breast health. I look forward to our continued conversations. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.